Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife. This week, we have a long overdue episode for you with Dr. Mark Welton of Stanford University, who is discussing his experiences as a surgeon, a leader, and a family man after a traumatic incident. I think you guys will greatly enjoy this episode and learn a lot from it. It's a slight break from our more academic intensive episodes. We apologize for the audio quality. This was recorded over the phone, but I believe the content more than suffices for the slight deficiencies in audio. All right. Well, welcome to Behind the Knife. We are absolutely pleased to have a friend and a mentor of mine, Dr. Mark Lane Welton, who is the chief of staff at Stanford University Hospitals and Clinic and also a colorectal surgeon. Mark is one of the leading experts in the world, actually, for both AIN and anal cancer. And Mark, welcome to Behind the Knife. We appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. So one of the things that we kind of wanted to talk to you about right off the bat is a little bit about leadership opportunities and essentially the opportunity to go from one job to another right in the early to mid portion of your career. You obviously left the University of California, San Francisco and went to Stanford and have really kind of seen that grown over the years. But take us back to the time when you were at UCSF and you know, debating what to do, what were your next steps, and in retrospect, in hindsight, what did you learn about that process, and what can you share for people out there? Uh, well, first of all, it was a very personal decision, and uh, I left what I thought was the best job in the world, and I did not think that there could be any job better. Uh, my mentor, Ted Schrock, was, you know, I think the best possible mentor, an incredible technical surgeon, in amazing judgment, uh, just the consummate uh, surgeon, mentor, educator, uh, completely dedicated to his craft and to training uh, residents and to training me as a junior faculty member. Uh, and it was incredibly hard to leave uh, UCSF. I had great friends there, Nancy Asher, John Roberts, the entire transplant division. I had great people within general surgery with uh, Kim Kirkwood and and uh, Sean Mulvihill had been there, and I, and I just Larry Way, you know, again a, a huge leader in academic surgery. So it was a it was a very difficult decision for me to leave, uh, it was, but it was a very personal decision, and I, it was actually completely a hundred percent based on what I thought was best for me and my family at the time. I actually thought I was leaving. Uh, an, an incredible program, and I did not think that that Stanford was uh, equal to UCSF uh, in the Department of Surgery. Uh, but I was challenged by Tom Crummel to come down and join him and be part of building uh, something that would be equal to UCSF, and I found that very um, uh, enticing. I, I liked the the challenge. Uh, but ultimately, it was really a personal decision as to where I was going to live and how much I wanted to be involved with my family. And I was driving 45 minutes a day each way to work at UCSF. 
My family was not interested in moving into San Francisco, and I wanted to be more engaged with my family, figuring I had a certain window of years that my family would want to have anything to do with their father. Uh, And so I felt that this was my chance to get to that uh, that part of my life. And I really relied on advice that Mike Zinner gave me when I was looking at my very first job. And he told me um, that it, enjoy the fact that people are interested in you, ride the emotional roller coaster up, that people are, 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 are after you, are courting you. Uh, but then ultimately, and he used some expletives that I'll leave out, he said, but ultimately, um, you know, forget about everybody else. He didn't use that exact word. Uh, and do what's right for you. And he said, you, you don't owe anybody anything, and you have to do what's right for you. And I, every time I face a difficult decision, uh, I actually, a career decision, obviously not uh, do I want a peanut butter jelly sandwich versus a turkey sandwich, but the difficult decision of what do I want to do with my career and my life at this time, you have to come back to what's, I think, come back to what's ultimately best for you. And I, when I say for you, I mean in parentheses and your family. And I will also say that when I made a very difficult decision at one time, leaving uh, a job I had with Mike Zinner, I explained to him that I was doing it for my family, and that ended all discussion about whether or not I should stay with him. And he completely uh, respected, acknowledged, uh, and really elevated that decision for me. He, I can't think of the right word, but he immediately acknowledged how that was really the most important uh, criteria to judge uh, uh, your decision on, and if it was something I was doing that I thought was right for my family, and then me as for my career and everything else, that that, that was really the right thing to be doing. Uh, so when I, that was really what happened when I decided to leave UCSF. I left people that I loved, uh, but I, uh, you know, loved my family more, I guess, and chose to move down to Stanford and take a great opportunity there. Uh, It was a struggle the first few years I was at Stanford. I actually felt like I'd made a mistake. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then as you build into it, it gets to be, uh, you know, then then that led to my leadership opportunities and my leadership education opportunities, and I'm obviously very happy with the decision. You know, one of the things you talked about there was having your boss basically, you know, have your best interests in mind and to communicate that effectively and early. How has that transitioned to now with you finding yourself in a leadership role into how you interact with your junior staff, even though you may want them to stay? I, I literally just told this. So there's a resident, uh, chief resident, a fellow actually right now who is at Stanford, who's being courted by another institution at the same time that she is being courted by Stanford. And I don't know that the people who are at Stanford know that I'm telling her to do what's right for her and that she doesn't owe us anything. I do know that it looks like she's going to stay, but I told her just that story. And I, I, we talked for about a half an hour one time, recently last week, and we've talked multiple times around you really have to do what's 
what's right for you. So I, I, I use Mike Zinner's uh, uh, story with me, uh, and I use his advice all the time with my residents and faculty, and I, I believe strongly in, uh, I, may not, I may not agree with the decision either, uh, but those decisions are complicated decisions, and I think then ultimately it's your job to turn around and support your person in doing everything, and do everything you possibly can to help them succeed. I am not a person who believes that if somebody, say, changes their mind and leaves general surgery and goes into ortho, that, that I've been insulted uh, and that I should uh, get... Uh, you know, uh, retribution, vindication, uh, and, and go after them. Uh, and there are faculty like that who take it personally. And I honestly don't understand that. My goal is to have my medical students, residents, and faculty be able to look back at the end of their lives, like one of, like my mentor Ed Pissarro said to me, uh, and look back at their lives feeling like they led their life and the life they chose to lead. You don't want to end up at the end of your life feeling like you've led somebody else's imagination of what your life should be. Those can be complicated things to figure out. It's often You're often not sure what your life is supposed to be. When I went into academic surgery, I really didn't know if I was going to like it at all. And I had a very good friend who was an administrative chief resident with me in my chief year. And he went into private practice and I went into academic medicine. And you don't really know what you're getting into. But I thought, well, I'll try this. And if it's not right for me, I'll do something else. And literally two days into it, I knew I'd made the right decision. But there's no way for you to know as a resident whether or not you want to be in academics or private practice or, you know, do you want to be a, you know, this type of surgeon or that type. Type of surgeon, so I think that you have to make the best decision you can make at the time with the best information you can pull together, and then keep reassessing where you are and where you're headed. And uh, I love where I am and how my career has evolved. And you would never have picked me out of the medical school class uh, and said that you know Mark will end up as a an academic surgeon at Stanford. I was most, voted most likely to die of melanoma. Because I was constantly on the beach, you know, <laughs> body surfing and you know playing frisbee in the sand, sort of thing. Uh, so I, uh, but but I, I think that you know I was constantly trying to 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 look at what I thought would you know work out best for my family and listening to those advisors who said you know make the decision that's ultimately the best one that you can make for yourself. Looking at your bio, it seems kind of at some point in your career you took a a short leadership course and then you dove straight into a full uh, degree in uh, health administration and management at Harvard. What uh, caused you to do that? And can you take us through that? Yeah, I um, I, uh, I I took a course at um, Stanford actually uh, run by a guy named Joe Hopkins. Uh, and I think it was the inaugural year of this leadership course at Stanford, and we had like a day and a half uh, every couple of months where we'd do this thing. And and I just I found it fascinating to really scale up beyond the uh, individual delivering the best care, you know, me delivering the best care to a patient, and then how do we deliver better care to groups of people, and how do groups of people deliver better care to populations. And I found that really fascinating. Uh, I also found the uh, 
the education around uh, leadership uh, and learning about operations and learning about management really intriguing. And so then I took a two-week course at uh, Harvard, which offered by Ian Trevelyan, and I recommend it to every mid-career physician. They really offer it to people who are sort of assistant associate professor level people. Um, and it, it's, it's a two-week incredibly intense course uh, offered through the School of Public Health, but it is... It is such a luxury to sit there in a class for two weeks and be taught by world leaders in this area. And I was, I was just, I was swept off my feet. I mean, I just came back so excited about quality in healthcare and how to improve quality in healthcare, and and then all the different issues around again operations, management, leadership, even accounting, and 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 how hospitals run. I was always convinced that hospitals kept multiple books. Uh, to for for various conversations. So if you're the surgeon coming in to ask for the the latest robot, the hospital goes, oh, we don't have any money for you. And yet, if they're presenting their books to the uh, hospital board, they look, they go, oh, look, we're making millions. It's like, well, wait a minute, how can you be making millions for the hospital board and be broke when I'm coming to ask you for a new pair of forceps? And in fact, I learned that they actually do keep multiple books, and that's all part of the legal uh, way that hospitals are run. And I learned in that two-week course that my hospital administration, wherever I was ever going to be, was never going to learn my language, which is really complications, and Scott will tell you, anastomotic leaks and how to deal with anastomotic leaks, uh, and you know how to do an ileoinal pouch better or worse, and, and all those sorts of things that we as surgeons live and breathe on a day-to-day basis. And uh, I, I realized that the CEO of the hospital was talking EBITDA and contribution to margin and you know, whatever other Oper- uh, uh, sorry, uh, financial uh, issues uh, that they would want to throw out at me, and uh, and I also realized that they would have leaders, you know, clinical leaders come and meet with them, and they would have us all in the room to get our consent to go ahead with a certain expenditure or a certain program, and they would speak to us in these financial terms that they knew none of the physicians in the room understood, and it was like it'd be like doing an informed consent for a a patient for an ileoinal pouch, and you say, well, we're going to go down to S3 and open wall dyer's fascia and, and go into all this detail that the patient's eyes are glazing over, they have no idea what you're talking about, and then the patient goes, well, okay. And the same thing's true when the hospital leadership was talking to us about various uh, uh, strategic decisions or financial decisions, and they would go on and on and on, and then we'd be lost in what they said, and we'd say, well, okay. And I really decided I wanted to learn their language. I wanted to understand what they were saying. So I, as a physician, could participate in the direction of healthcare, both in our hospital and even potentially nationally, to sort of say, are we doing what we need to be doing to best serve our patients? And... um and I was only in my first year of the two-year course at Harvard at when our CFO was giving us a talk about some financial decision that they had made and trying to pitch it to the clinical leaders. And he was going on about the way healthcare is in Ohio and in Massachusetts and North Carolina. And I raised my hand and I said, well, wait a minute. Healthcare in California, I've learned through my, I didn't say, but I've learned through my master's in healthcare management at Harvard, 
is unlike healthcare anywhere else in the country because healthcare in California is actually driven by Kaiser. And he and he, he turned around and stared at me with a laser lock and he goes, Well that's absolutely right. And then I said, So really what's going on in Massachusetts, North Carolina and Ohio really has nothing to do with our health care decisions and our financial decisions. And he goes, Well, that's absolutely right. So what he was in the middle of doing was giving us this typical smoke screen that I felt to be very found to be very frustrating. And he was going to do this, and then we're going to go ahead and we're going to all nod our heads and say, okay, you, you can have what you want. Now, it didn't change it. We all still nod our heads and said, you know, do what you want. You're the hospital, and this is your decision. This is your strategic plan. And, and we agree with we got to take some sort of strategic action, so go ahead and do this. But it stopped at least with me, the, the feeling that I was just being completely buffaloed. Now, I'm not a CFO, and I can't challenge a CFO, and I'll never be able to uh, challenge the CFO. In fact, my wife doesn't let me manage a checkbook. But uh, I was able to elevate the conversation or take the conversation in a different direction and sort of stop him with the, the direction that we were going. Now, as we went through the rest of the Masters in healthcare management at Harvard, I experienced literally the greatest luxury of my entire career uh, to sit again w- for two years learning uh, from literally the leaders in the world in these various fields was an incredible uh, uh, luxury as an adult educator, I mean, as, as an adult seeking education. Uh, now it was a very busy time and, uh, uh, I was flying back and forth across the country while I still was taking care of colorectal patients and running the Stanford Cancer Center. Uh, but I, I just, it was really one of the most enjoyable times in my life. And I would recommend to anybody, again, who's sort of in the mid-career looking at leadership opportunities, looking at trying to potentially run their VA or be very involved in their their hospital or in healthcare delivery systems, I'd encourage people to, to take a course like that, uh, each, actually that course, but there are other courses or other programs like that. But we need to have physicians in healthcare leadership roles. We can't have uh, MBAs running uh, healthcare operation, uh, 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 healthcare operations without input from physicians, and the physician input has to be knowledgeable. It has to be that we understand the conversation and we're engaged in the conversation. And if you look at great institutions that are cutting you know, leading the way, Toby Cosgrove at Cleveland Clinic uh, Foundation. I mean, he's a cardiac surgeon. Uh, uh, Glenn Steele at Geisinger. Uh, you look at the places where people are are changing healthcare delivery, and physicians are in the in leadership roles, if not in the lead. And I was like uh, maybe you guys. I'm not sure. Uh, when I was a resident at UCLA. And early into my career at UCSF, I thought leadership and management uh, was for people who couldn't operate. Because if you could operate, there's no way you'd go sit in some stupid meeting for an hour and waste your time. You'd be in doing even a hemorrhoidectomy. It was more fun than sitting in a wasted, a wasted time, useless meeting. Uh, and so many meetings are that way. And I've been asked actually what you do with that. And those meetings you actually then just you, know, you excuse yourself from and get engaged in the ones that you can, you can drive change with. But I, I do think that, that the educational uh, – well, let me actually give one other explanation – one other 
expansion on this um, discussion. You don't have to take uh, an advanced leadership course to be involved in leadership uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Dave Mavi at Northwestern doesn't have an advanced degree, and he argues that some of it's natural. And so it could be natural uh, uh, for people who have that skill set like Mavi. Uh, and and I, I appreciate his leadership abilities. He's done a great job at Northwestern, and he's done a great job with the American Board of Surgery. Uh, I'm the kind of person, I did my residency at UCLA in a program that we used to say, you know, in surgery we say, see one, do one, teach one. At UCLA, the joke was, see one, see one, see one, and then have I shown you how I like to do this? And I do better in a situation where I'm taught um, sort of over and over again. I'm not the type of person who would have thrived in a county hospital facility where I was opening the textbook to figure out how to fix uh, a broken ankle like some of my uh, colleagues from medical school did in their various training programs. So I like the I like the didactic piece. I like to learn how you're supposed to approach it. And then I, I like to sort of develop my skill set around that. Uh, I think you can learn on the fly. I think certainly lots of people do. And I think historically department chairs and those sorts of individuals always have. But I, I do think that potentially my view would be that we would introduce leadership and management and operations and conflict resolution and all those sorts of topics to people actually when they're in medical school so they could actually see that as potential career pathways and say that you could you know, hang rats by their tails and be a great basic scientist or be a translational researcher or be a great clinician or actually learn about leadership and management and, and help us improve healthcare delivery. Uh, I like to say that in the 40s, uh, when uh, Miles wrote up the abdominal perineal resection, uh, the mortality was 40%. Now, if you have a death with an abdominal perineal resection, it's, it's discussed at M&M. It's like, well, what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, what's changed in that time period is a lot of really smart men and women have focused on how to improve anesthesia, how to improve surgical technique, and they've driven mortality down to zero. If we took the, or not, you know, much, 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 much lower, if we took the same sort of focus on improving healthcare delivery and improving healthcare management, uh, I think we could uh, dramatically improve healthcare in the United States. So that's fantastic stuff. We're going to transition now to our dissection of the day, which is the portion of the podcast where we kind of delve a little bit uh, more in depth. Mark, one of the things we want to talk to you about is obviously something that is uh, very raw, very emotional, something that we don't talk a whole lot about as physicians and in many cases, surely not as surgeons. And that's uh, living through a traumatic accident and also the physician as a patient and what you've learned from that. And uh, I, you know, several people know, but obviously not everybody listening to this podcast, you were involved in a unbelievably uh, severe uh, bike accident. Could you take us through first the accident itself and tell the listeners a little bit about that and kind of walk us through that day and walk us through what you remember of those first initial days following the accident? Yeah, uh, it was Saturday, uh, February 5th. Uh, 
uh, four years ago, so 2011. Uh, I was, uh, I'd had some sort of stiff back issues that had sort of been bugging me a little bit. Uh, my wife was going to go for a ride with her triathlon team, uh, and they were going to do a big climb and a big day, and, and uh, I, my wife was not supportive of me riding with her. I was really wanting to go climb, but she's like, you know, your back's really been bugging you, uh, so, uh, you know, you really shouldn't climb. And she's right, I shouldn't have climbed. And uh, so I started out with her team for the flat warm-up ride, and then she and her team took off and turned left and went on this big climb, and I went straight on a flat ride. Uh, it was 920 Five, I think, 923, something like that in the morning on a Saturday morning, gorgeous February 5th morning, one of the reasons why I live in California, not Boston, because I could be out riding my bike. Uh, and I was going downhill, uh, just had crested a, um, a the, the tiny, not just a rolling sort of hill, but I was now going downhill, uh, probably doing somewhere on the range of probably 28, maybe maybe not probably not quite up to 30 miles an hour because I was I'd had my bike fit uh, worked on uh, two days before and so I was sort of settling in trying to see how the fit felt and it was feeling pretty good and there were a bunch of team and training people out it was the first day of team and training training for the uh, winter, I guess. I don't really know how they break it up. But there were a tremendous number of people out, and it was great to see. And people who clearly aren't used to riding bikes, they were in tube socks and gym shorts and flat pedals and tennis shoes and, and looked like they needed to get some exercise to get to where they wanted to be as far as fitness. And I was riding by various groups of people and saying, good for you and congratulations, good to see you out. And uh, I had just passed a uh, group of uh, six, and I was coming up to a group of four, and I was in between the two gaps. Uh, I was in the gap between the two groups, um, and I was going on a long sort of uh, sweeping uh, turn that sweeps to the uh, left, and uh, in this sweep to the left, there's a road that comes in from the right, and then uh, for the traffic coming uphill at me, there's a left-hand turn lane that uh, develops out of the single lane or the two-lane road that develops so out of the single lane that's coming at me. There's a left-hand turn lane that develops. And there, there's a car that was coming uphill at me, and I happened to be looking right at it because I was sort of at this long sweep. And, um, and then right behind it, out pops this uh, Volvo sedan. And... As soon as I saw it, I literally, you know, these thoughts are as fast as thoughts can occur in your mind is the only way I can say this. It wasn't like there was a big gap between my first thought, my second thought, and my third thought. It was like boom, 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 as fast as your mind can think. I wasn't even saying it. Uh, that car popped out from behind the car in front of him, and I said, wow, that guy's flying, and then... I also noticed immediately that the hood of his car wasn't dropping. And so, number one, he was going uphill. So if he took the brake, sorry, if he took his foot off the gas, the hood of the car would drop. Number two, if he was putting his foot on the brake like he would had to have been to be slowing down to stop to let me go through the intersection, the hood of the car would have dropped. Uh, so I knew those two things weren't happening. So the first thought was, wow, he's flying, number two, the hood of the car is not dropping, he's not stopping, I can't stop. And I right. then, that's the last thing I 
remember. Uh, I do know that when I was in the ICU, I was having PTSD, and in the PTSD, I was uh, holding my brakes as hard as I could, squeezing my brakes as hard as I could, and screaming swear words, one particular one over and over that begins with an F, uh, and, um, or I think maybe one long scream. Uh, the uh, PTSD event, so I don't have any actual memory of that, but that seems to fit with what might have been happening. Um, I then, um, the next thing I remember uh, was uh, hearing the uh, click of the wheel uh, that locks, the wheel locking into the well on the floor of the ambulance. And uh, I woke up with that click and the paramedic saying, well, this guy's kind of (laughs) confused. He keeps saying over and over and over again that his boss is Tom Cromwell. He's Mark Welton. He's the medical director of the Cancer Center at Stanford. Please take him to Stanford. But he doesn't know who the president is. He doesn't know what year it is. And he doesn't know his birthday. And so that's when I became, and this is an interesting sort of question, what is consciousness? Because that's the first consciousness that I'm aware of. But apparently I was sitting, I, I was laying in the middle of the road uh, and apparently a physician, a retired physician, came upon me and stood over me in the middle of the road, and apparently I told him that I was a doctor, I knew I wasn't supposed to move, and I'd wait for the paramedics to come, and apparently I was uh, very cooperative and all that, but I, I, I have no knowledge of that. I don't know how long I was in the road uh, I, I then, I, I, the part that I do know, when I heard the paramedic say that, I literally said, well, this is the first time that I'm aware that I'm talking. Uh, right. And, uh, this, you know, those things are all true. Uh, and the president's Obama, and my birthday is, you know, October 24th, 1956, and the year's 2011. And so then the next thing I remember is they asked me if I could straighten out my left leg, and I said no. And he said, okay, don't try. And then I, I, he then told me that I wear a a road ID, which is the thing that uh, started out with bike riders, but I think runners and all sorts of other people wear, and I actually wear mine all the time. But on my road ID, it has my wife's name and my doctor's name. And he told me that they'd already tried to call my wife uh, based on the phone number on my wrist. And I said, well, my wife's at the top of Skyline without her phone. She's riding with her team, so she won't answer. And so I then got to... I rode in the ambulance to Stanford. Uh, that wasn't an unpleasant ride at all. I don't really remember a lot of the conversation. Uh, I remember getting there, and there were you know, a lot of people there that... that I knew. Right. So there was a lot of... The trauma surgeons were there, and they're, you know, and actually, uh, Dr. Norton was Jeff Norton, one of my partners, was there, and so there a lot of people were there, and a lot of people were uh, were ready. And so again, then, I know Mark how how difficult this is. It goes without saying how difficult this is to talk about. We do appreciate you uh, kind of walking us through this stuff. I I do have funny memories around it. I remember. Uh, the residents fighting about who was going to do the rectal exam. So uh, <laughs> that's what Kevin would do like, to me. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so I was like, well, who's the trauma chief? And it was this woman who's an R4, Ellen. I said, Ellen, you're the trauma chief. You're doing it. So, uh, and then I actually don't remember much about being scanned. Uh, I just remember next being in the ICU. Uh, and I remember, uh, um, uh, having just pain that is really, uh, unimaginable. Just, just, uh, I, I'd had, uh, before that, I'd had four abdominal operations from a ruptured appendix when I was 23 years old. And after the third operation, they called my father, who's a physician, and told my father I was going to die of peritonitis. Uh, and I had a 10% chance of living. And I'd been in the, I was in the hospital for a month at that time. I'd had two previous back operations for herniated discs in 86 and 2003. I'd had shoulder surgery in, in 83. I, I really thought I'd experienced plenty of pain, and there is nothing like the pain of an unstable pelvic fracture. It is just unimaginable. Uh, the only way to explain it is to understand that you're really moving two broken bones across the broken surface every time you do anything from sneezing or coughing or any sort of movement of your bed, any anything, it's it's you're moving those two ends of the broken bone across each other, and that is just you know uh, uh, incredibly painful. And so I was, I remember being in the ICU, and I would I would drift off to sleep, and then I would have this nightmare, and I would jolt awake, and when I would joke jolt awake, I would jolt my pelvic fracture and just be in you know agony again until I would drift off to sleep and do it again and again and again. It was just, it was amazing how I couldn't stop myself uh, from doing that. And then they start, they, they um, oh, I'm blanking the name of the drug right now, but they gave me a drug to try to stop the PTSD and actually helped. Uh, and then um, the other thing that, that really the first a couple of amazing lessons that I will just always hold on to uh, and that do impact my patient care. And I tell people to, to um, I tell people about this so they'll understand. I, I used to walk into patients' rooms and wake them up and, and say, how's your pain on a scale of one to 10? They go in eight. And I think to myself, come on, I just woke you yeah. up. How can I wake you up and have, have you say you're in a pain 8 out of 10? Because you were asleep, so the pain couldn't be an 8 out of 10 because if it was an 8 out of 10, you wouldn't be able to be asleep. Well, the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is when you have constant unrelating pain, you eventually fall asleep out of exhaustion. And so for um, – I can tell you that for, let's see, 21 – For 16 straight days, and I know it 16 days because it was my daughter's – birthday, February 21st, for 16 straight days, the most I ever slept at a time was one hour. And I would wake Mm -hmm. up every hour on the hour. If it was eight o'clock at night, I'd wake up praying it was five o'clock in the morning and it wouldn't be, it'd be nine o'clock and I'd fall back to sleep and it'd be 10 and 11. And every single hour of the day, I would pray for the next hour to come along so that I knew that I was an hour closer to the pain stopping. And the first time I slept more than one hour at a time was on the night of the 21st. And it was the first time I'd ever had the pain under control enough that I could actually sleep. 
And so that's okay, I, I, I do yeah. I do want to I do want people to know out there. Could you just before we go into your second lesson a little bit more about that? Can you tell the audience what your injuries were? You talked about your unstable oh. pelvic fracture, but that wasn't it. I know that for a fact. So yeah. can you just tell us very quickly before you and then get back into your other thing? Sure. Didn't mean to cut you off, but what what no, they no. were? Yeah. So I, I so the way we put it back together again, I probably turned my right side of my body to the car as I hit the car. And so that was an incredibly lucky thing to do. Uh, if I, I think if I'd hit it head on, I'd be dead. Uh, and in fact, all everybody who's taking care of me says I should be dead anyway. Uh, because I broke my clavicle, my right clavicle in three places. And in fact, the middle third of it was 90 degrees to the other two pieces. It was pointing into my lung, but didn't rupture, didn't perforate my lung. Uh, I broke both my first ribs, both my second ribs. I crushed my sternum, and I have a seventh degree separation of my shoulder, so I broke every ligament that holds your shoulder together on the left. I, I always thought there were just three degrees of separation and maybe six, mm-hmm. but I, now I've learned there's seven. Uh, and then I had my pelvis was broken in five places. I crushed my right sacrum, so it went from a good slice of pie to a tiny sliver of pie. And I broke both my pubic rami on the left, blowing the, the fractures out into my left acetabulum, but not into the weight-bearing portion of my acetabulum. So I have five pelvic fractures, uh, a total of t- 12 broken bones. Uh, I bled from a crit of 48 to a crit of 21 uh, with a pelvic hematoma. Um, I uh, I hit the car at what they call the A post of the car, which apparently is the strongest part of the car. And the sheriff said he'd never seen a person's body make such a huge dent in the car. And then on the roof of the car, there's a big dent from my helmet. I apparently hit the car snap my head up onto the roof of the car, and then most likely bounce back off the car, uh, so like riding into a brick wall instead of catapulting over the top of the car, because a woman who was riding her bike the other direction, actually was standing on the road helping a person with their bike on the other side of the road, um, uh, saw me in what she was called a T-stand. My front wheel was 90 degrees to my bike, and then she saw me fall over. Uh, and so those are my, uh, injuries. Uh, mm-hmm. I had, I had surgery after a couple of days on my right clavicle at six weeks. I had my left shoulder rebuilt. Uh, I, because I, and again, I think the reason why I'm alive, all of my fractures were compression fractures. Uh, they mm-hmm. didn't have to operate on anything else. They were all in line, and they, they, they compressed one side and blew out the other side, but they stayed in line. And so we didn't have to operate to stabilize my pelvic fractures to get them realigned, which was good, but then again, it left me with about five and a half weeks of an unstable pelvic fracture, which uh, was re- uh, responsible for all the uncontrolled pain. Uh, now, one of the things you were then, telling us was a little bit about your lessons that you learned regarding pain, and you had said you had two lasting lessons, and I had cut you off right after the first one so we yeah. could understand the devastation that occurred. Can you go back a little bit and talk to us about that? Sure. The, 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 well, the second and actually third really important lesson, I, I think, um, is, and I just lost the second lesson, the second lesson, waking people up for pain, um, uh, 
I just totally lost it. But the third one, I'll come back to the second one in a second. The third one also is around communication. I guess a lot of this is really uh, communication. But the third one is a really important lesson that my intensivist took away from this that none of us really paid attention to, to before, and that is communicating with communicating with family. Yep. So my son didn't know that I was wasn't dying every day. Mhm. And I knew after the day I was hit that I wasn't going to die. I I thought I was going to be in pain for a while. I actually had no idea how long I was going to be in pain, but my son thought for all 19 days that I was in the hospital that I was going to die at any minute. And so and he was 15. And it took us 2 years to understand that he was still dealing with anxiety and depression around my crash. And we could have told him on day one that I wasn't dying. And we didn't know to tell him that. So I think it's critical to tell people that, yes, your son, your father, your wife, your daughter has been through a terrible crash or terrible uh, uh, injury in, in the military or, you know, they've had a terrible illness, whatever it is, but they're not dying anymore. We're not worried that they're going to die. We're not actively thinking that, the, you know, that, that he is on death, he or she is on death's doorstep, which is where my son was the entire time. He did not know till I came home that I wasn't dying. And that we didn't understand that he didn't know that because we just thought he was a quiet, you know, teenage boy who wasn't talking much like teenage boys don't talk. And, uh, and it, so, you know, two years later it, it came out. And, uh, the other lesson that I learned, uh, again, around trauma issues is, uh, dealing with concussions. We really, no, nobody talked to me about my concussion, and I didn't know I had a concussion. I didn't realize the impact of my concussion on me. Uh, and finally, uh, so the crash was in February, and in the middle of the summer, I experienced things that are known to occur with concussions. I didn't know I had a concussion. Yeah, sure, you had a concussion. You hit your head on the roof of the car, but you don't have a big bleed, and you know, you'll be fine sort of thing. Well, no. I had a significant concussion that I didn't realize I had. And it, it, I would, you know, if it didn't happen, if I didn't experience it, and I listened to somebody tell my stories, as I told people my stories, people look at me and say, you're nuts. You know, there's really something wrong with you. But I learned that uh, concussions, uh, to recover from a concussion, you really need to, you know, number one, know you have it. Number two, there are a lot of things that you can do to manage it. You can manage your protein intake. You can manage your water intake. You can manage your... So I learned a lot about concussion, about managing concussions with you need protein and you need water and you need to manage your sleep. 
And these are all three critical functions of, of having a concussion or recovering from a concussion, uh, whether it's mild or severe. And I... I, I did not understand that I had a concussion. I mentioned to my primary care doc in September of the year that, well, you know, I think I had a concussion. He goes, well, of course you did. You hit your head. But we didn't do anything proactive about that. And uh, it wasn't until October of, the, of that year when I was driving through San Francisco in an area that I was very familiar with. I used to teach nursery school a couple blocks away from there. So I'd been there literally, you know, hundreds of times, and I was suddenly lost. It was completely a Henry Fonda on Golden Pond demented uh, person sort of reality uh, or dementia person sort of reality. I did not recognize anything. I did not have any idea where I was. And it was an instant switch. And and it was like, well, wait a minute. Where, um, where, how can I not know where I am, I knew where I was two seconds ago. How can I suddenly be lost? But I didn't recognize any of my landmarks, and I grew up in the Bay Area. I've been all over San Francisco forever, forever, and I, I didn't recognize any of my landmarks. And so I did. My wife was with me, and I said, "Well, I can't tell her because she'll get." upset that I don't know where I am and she'll worry about me. So I just kept following traffic and slowly, slowly started piecing things together and understanding where I was. And I ended up getting to where we were headed. It took a little bit of a detour, but my wife doesn't know San Francisco the way I do, so she never (laughs) knew I was lost. And then that happened a couple of more times. And then I ended up finally... A psychiatrist that I was at a meeting with, I was sort of talking about, he said, looks like you're recovering well. And I was telling him a little bit of my story. He goes, you've got to go see this woman who's our concussion expert. And she then saw me and uh, put me through, and this was 13 months after the crash, saw me and said, you definitely had a concussion. You no longer have PTSD, uh, but you definitely had PTSD, but that would be normal, but you no longer have that. Uh, and we need to help you with your concussion. And she put me through testing, and the testing showed that the things that I thought were abnormal were abnormal. I would get confused over time. If you said, let's meet from at 1 o'clock for, from 1 to 2, I would show up at 2. And it'd be like, well, you said, you know, one to two, and I'd be like, yeah, and it's two. I would be, I would hang on the last part of the one to two part, and so, and I, I've always been a very punctual person, so I didn't understand it. So I got to the point that I had my secretary call me 15 minutes before everything I was going to do to say, you know, you have to be here in 15 minutes. I would go. I went to a meeting one time on campus. I literally went all the way there, talked to a few people, and went home and forgot to go to the meeting. I was supposed to have a, a phone call, and I completely forgot about the phone call. So I'd forget all these things. And I would be in the middle of, you know, everything would be focused on go do this, and then I'd be on my way there, and I'd forget I was on my way there, and I'd go do something else and completely forget about it. The other lesson that I had forgotten earlier that I think is actually really important about or really interesting about concussions is when I was in the intensive care unit, Andy Shelton came in to ask me a question about a clinical when the patient with very complicated Crohn's disease. Now, Andy's a brilliant colorectal surgeon, a great technician, knows everything about Crohn's disease. I was completely gorked out on every drug known to man 
my wife and brother were in the room. They said I was completely, you know, unable to communicate. I was on so many drugs. I was just in so much pain. Andy walks in the room and says, hey, I got a question for you. My brother and my wife said I just sort of sat right up in bed, looked at him, came completely awake. He rattled off the question. I go, you got to do this, 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 and this. (laughs) And then as soon as he left the room, I fell back into a comatose state. And the psychologist talks about how we have rote protected memory. And the rope protected memory you have is the stuff that's just beat into you throughout your entire surgical residency. And in fact, it's one of the concerns I have about simulation of, around training. I think the fact that those of us that are trained in the old days, and I don't think we should go back to the dinosaurs walking the earth, but you know, we were working 110 hours a week, 120 hours a week, getting called at 2 o'clock in the morning to be asked questions. We'd wake up, we'd answer the question, we'd fall back to sleep, and then the resident in the morning would say, remember I called you last night about that patient? you go, I don't remember anybody calling me. Well, that's sort of beating it into you. So it's complete rote, non-thinking memory is the kind of memory that we have around, that I have around, you know, my surgical field of expertise. On the other hand, I was getting lost. I was getting confused around time. If you had, if you asked me to hold five numbers in my head, I couldn't. And so it's an interesting thing to understand concussion and memory and stringing things together. But what's important to know about this as a clinician is that physicians, people who have concussions require a lot of protein as they are recovering because you're laying down new neural pathways and you're doing what they call pruning those neural pathways. And that was critical for my recovery because when I came back after 13 months and about 14 months did a takedown loop ileostomy, which I've done a thousand times, took me 40 minutes. I didn't think it was any big deal. A half an hour after that operation, I was a complete wreck in my office. I couldn't move. I couldn't think. I couldn't walk. I was completely and totally overwhelmed and exhausted as if it was the day after the crash. A week later, I saw my psychologist and she said, well, did you have any protein around that? And I said, no. She goes, oh, you know, you've got to have protein. You had completely spent every bit of protein in your body pruning those neural pathways, and that's why you went back into that state. These are things that we just, I I guess maybe the trauma surgeons know about, I don't know about, and certainly I wasn't talked to about in my recovery process uh, until much, much later into it. So water, sleep, protein are critical for recovery from, uh, from concussions. Switching into what now your role as a leader, you obviously were a uh, a leader of a group of, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, Andy, who was a little bit obviously well experienced to some young new members of the cohort. Tell me about recovery from that crash, how that affected you as a leader, how you got back in, stepping back in as a leader of that particular group, and what were your lessons learned around that, around work? Well, that's really an interesting process, actually. My, uh, number one, uh, some people in my group felt abandoned by me when I was uh, at home in the hospital bed, uh, that I, I wasn't there for them to help them manage their career challenges. And I felt very badly about that. Obviously, there's nothing I could do about it, but I, I did feel badly about that. As I then came back, um, I actually was really fortunate to, even throughout the whole process, actually, even before I was back, even when I was home, unable to uh, even get out of the hospital bed, my 
partners were discussing various cases with me, and, and I was able to give them advice about how to approach different things. And in fact, about uh, five months after the op- after the crash, uh, one of my partners was in the operating room struggling uh, with a very difficult situation and, and called and said, is there any way you can come in? And I said, well, you know, I'm on the couch. I will get up, get dressed. It's going to take me, you know, half hour to get out of the house and get there. But if you want to wait, I'll be there. And the, you will wait. And so I, I, I did get up and get dressed. And I was able to, you know, lean in and give my advice about the difficult situation. Uh, and then, you know, sit down in the corner for a while and then go lean in again and give my advice. And so uh, th- that was uh, uh, good for me to realize that my uh, clinical decision making was still there. Um, and although I couldn't stand at the table and do anything because I was in too much pain, I could at least discuss how to manage the situation. And then as I came back, my junior partners were just spectacular. I mean, Natalie Karilchik, uh really helped me get back into the operating room because I would say to patients, look, I won't be able to stand for the entire case. I just will be in too much pain. And this was starting around 13 months after the crash. I I, I don't have the stamina. Uh, I'll be in too much pain. And so what I would do is uh, Natalie would start the case with me, uh, and then we'd get to the tough part of the operation, and I would stand up and, and do the tough part of the operation with her. And then, you know, once I'd, if it had to go on for longer, I'd go sit down for a while. And then when she was ready for me for the tough part of the case, again, I'd stand up and again do the tough part of the case and then let her finish up. And patients knew that I wasn't able to do the entire operation. It was a, a way that I was able to slowly, slowly uh, get back into it. And then I, I was able to get back into it, although I certainly am not the same uh, uh I don't manage myself in the same way as before the crash. I knew going into the crash that surgery is an endurance sport. It 100% is an endurance sport, and we are endurance athletes, and we don't pay attention to this. And I've actually something that I have a lot of passion around that I, I haven't studied yet that I really want to study, uh, and, and I think it has to be studied. But in, in endurance sports, and I, uh, I know that Scott knows this, that you know, if you're going to go out on a 100-mile bike ride, you're going to start eating and drinking 20 minutes into your ride. And then every since after that initial 20-minute gap, you're going to eat or drink something every 10 minutes. You've got to keep fueling. You don't want to get behind. It's just like blood loss in the operating room. You never want to get behind. You pull out the rapid infuser and keep up with it, and you're okay. If you get behind, then you get into coagulopathy, and you're in trouble. The same thing's true for endurance athletes, and surgeons are endurance athletes. And there's no way, there is no way that then at the end of an eight-hour day with nothing to eat or drink, that your clinical decision-making and your technical skill is what it was at the very beginning of the case. Um, now, we don't pay attention to that. We don't acknowledge that. We're surgeons. We, it's not part of our macho culture. But w- since my crash, I, I, I can see it and feel it in myself. And when I came back to operating, one thing that I did that was really, really, really hard to do was to say to the nurses and my resident, I need to stop. I need to walk to the the coat rack. I need to put pull out the builder bar that I have in my coat pocket. I need to eat that, drink some water, and I'll be back in five minutes. And years again, and I do that, and I come back less foggy, much sharper, much better to, uh, much more ready to go on. Years ago, Mike Zinner told me when I was just starting, 
he said, look, you ever, uh, you know, pay attention to, the, you know, you, uh, sorry, have you ever noticed that faculty will leave in the middle of a difficult case to go take a leak? And I go, yeah. yeah. He goes, we're not taking a leak. <laughs> he said, we're going to go call somebody. He goes, I'm leaving the operating room to call John Cameron. And I asked John Cameron, how would you handle this difficult port of Maine? And then I come back and I've taken my leak and John's told me what to do. And he said, so I want you, when you get in a situation that you don't know what to do, he goes, I want you to take a leak. Come call me, and I'll you know we'll talk over what to do, and then you can go ahead and do it. And so the first time I was in the had the opportunity to do that, I just had the nurse call and put the phone to my ear. He said to me, "God damn it, Mark! I told you to go take a leak." And I, I said, "Look, everybody in the room knows I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so I'm just being honest about it. Can you help me out here?" And the same thing's true, you know. I, he, here you should be able to leave, and, and if it's going to make you a better surgeon, drink some water, have a, a bar, and come back in in five minutes. It, it's okay. And so I would like to actually feed surgeons and give them water during cases, and I think it would be a good thing to do. I also think it would improve the residents' ability to learn o- over the course of a day because we give kids recess and lunch breaks, and we should be giving our residents food and water during the cases so they can learn because cases are uh, are valuable learning opportunities. So that's what I changed in my personal personal management, though, was to make sure I was eating and drinking lots of protein, lots of water uh, throughout the day, and giving myself permission to actually say I need to take a break. And that was a huge mental hurdle for me. I really felt guilty saying, I can't do this. I need to take a break. What was really amazing is everybody, as soon as I would say, go, good, you know, great, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, do this or do that till you get back. And there was no resentment. There was no anything. And and I felt incredibly guilty about it. And then uh, nobody in the room uh, thought it was unreasonable at all. And they all thought I should be doing it. So uh, that was a, a big lesson for me as well. Uh, so I had great uh, support from my junior colleagues. I learned to okay. So um, so and then as far as I I did I don't think I ever really had to shift away from you know resuming the leadership uh, uh, duties that they were they were gladly turned back over to me. One good thing that really came out of it too is some of the junior people uh, that had shied away from. Uh, some of the bigger, uh, more challenging cases that I was always the one to be doing learned that they could do them because they had to do them and they did do them and they developed around those. So I, that was actually a real benefit of it as well. What about your family, Mark? Uh, yeah, I know, and we're not, uh, not, not all the in-depth things, but in terms of at home and you know, did you notice that you were a little bit more irritable? Did you notice did any any things at home? Because obviously a lot of us, we don't really talk about that whole thing. And we all know that it, things about us and our job are really function one-in-one with our families. And what are some lessons that if you, that if you go back or you're counseling people going through this, what could you tell us? Well, yeah, absolutely. The... So one of the things I learned um, from this that I learned that my uh, psychologist taught me uh, is when people are are in near-death experiences like this, uh, there is a... uh, uh, There is a certain intolerance to bullshit uh, that you just... um, I used to really be a sponge and be able to absorb sort of 
everything, every little bit of conflict never really got to me. I just sort of let it roll. And uh, uh, now uh, I, I don't have that same ability. It's just not... And it's been, it's been four and a half years almost. I keep waiting for it to come back. But I, uh, it's just a bit of intolerance for uh, nonsense uh, conflict and uh, just uh, a little bit of irritability that over BS that I uh, struggle with, um, with uh, tolerating and hiding my intolerance of. I used to be able to hide my intolerance of it, but I literally had to now, uh, t- still, I had to get up and leave the room at times because I just, it, it just um, irritates me in a, in a way that it never did before the crash. And my psychologist tells me that's incredibly common, you know, pretty much predictable. Um, and so uh, that's a change. I, I uh, my family's still working through it uh, today, you know, my uh, wife was a huge road rider. She was on a traveling team. She had ridden from Menlo Park to San Diego. She had ridden through Death Valley. She had ridden, you know, pretty uh, all sorts of long trips on her bike and daily trips on her bike. And uh, she does not enjoy road riding anymore, although she does commute. Uh, she doesn't like being out on the road bike too much. She just thinks the cars are too close. She says that she used to be live in ignorant bliss, and uh, and now she just can't block out how close uh, those cars are and uh, how distracted the drivers are. It's really made her, uh, given a tremendous passion around improving roadway safety, and she's really dedicated her life to that and is making progress around here. With that, in fact, a person just literally an hour ago pulled me aside and said that every time they go by this one intersection that my wife worked very hard to improve, she looks at the green paint on the road and thanks my wife for that. Uh, so she's very, uh, she's been very uh, strong and influential in that area. California uh, Department of Motor Vehicles has just adopted a roadway zen uh, 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 campaign for the month of May, and they'll be uh, using it on the road on the roadway lighted signs. Uh, and that was uh, through an effort that my wife ran at a California uh, uh, Academy of Art. Um, so she's really done a tremendous amount around this around this area, and has been uh, is continuing to drive that. Uh, but she has lost the joy of riding on the road. Interestingly enough, I love road riding. I was back on my bike on the road a year to the day of, after the crash. It was my goal to be on my bike a year after the crash. I was not going to let this change my life. And I went out and rode in traffic on the, the anniversary of my crash. I rode in traffic in, in the town of Davis where I was buying my new bike. And my wife looked at me and she said, you're going to go ride in traffic? And I said, yep. And the guy who owned the shop said, you're going to go ride in traffic? And I said, yep. And I went out and I rode for an hour uh, out on the flat roads out in the fields around Davis and then back in through the town and in through traffic. And uh, I came back into the store. And my wife said, that's the first time I've seen him smile in a year. That's pretty so incredible. It's, that uh, you know, it's it's very it's been very important for me to be back on the bike and I still love being on the bike. My wife and I really enjoy mountain biking a lot together now. She, she will do that more than we road ride, but, and then my kids, I think 
my son still struggles. Uh, uh, my children uh, can have some irrational, they'll say they're irrational fears about me being on a bike and getting hit, but they still have them. So my two daughters, uh, uh, they worry about me being on my bike, even though they know it's irrational and, and they shouldn't. Uh, they know that they ride their bikes. They know that my wife rides her bike. My wife commutes on her bike in San Francisco, and yet she won't let me ride my bike alone. I have to ride with somebody else at all times. Uh, and I've only twice, uh, it's in the four, in the three and a half years I've been back on my bike since the crash, I've only twice been out on my bike alone, and my wife was not happy with me <laughs> in either situation. But uh, that's that's sort of what we, uh, that's sort of where we are with the crash. Mark, as we wrap up the dissection of the day portion of the podcast, just do you have any closing words? Obviously, this is incredibly inspiring, and and obviously very still emotionally raw and uh, something that we, I think we all can learn from, but any, any final words, anything for out there for, you know, just for the young residents in training, I know some valuable things you talked about pain, but just parting words here. Well, you know, I, that's a good question. I would say that what's amazed me through the, uh, a lot of things have amazed me through the process. I've learned how little I actually knew about what it was like to be a patient. Again, I I had been hospitalized multiple times in my life for back operations and bed rest before back operations in the hospital on high dose steroids and shoulder surgery and a you know ruptured appendix with abdominal sepsis for 25 days and four operations, I thought I knew what it was like to be a patient. I, I didn't understand as well as I could have just uncontrollable pain. Uh, I, but I also didn't understand concussions. And so the polytrauma patients are really a different breed. The, 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 exhaustion that you feel is on another scale than the exhaustion that you feel after a shoulder operation or abdominal operation or back operation. It's just all the different broken bones and all the different soft tissue injury. I mean, every piece of my body was injured and hurt no matter where it was. And I just think that the scale of that is under recognized, certainly by me and by people I talked to. I thought I was going to be back at work in six months. The latest I'd be back in August. There's just no way I would be, wouldn't be back by August. And it took me 13 months, and even there I couldn't work full days. And I, I had to have people helping me, and I had to go home. And so I think that, that we don't do a good job, or I didn't learn about this the way uh, that I did as a being a patient, and I don't hear people being taught about this. I don't hear people being taught about concussions the way that I learned about my concussion, and I think those two things are real opportunities. I think that the great thing is, is that if you keep driving, if you keep having support, you can come back, and you can. You won't ever. Here's another thing that people say to me all the time. So you're all over it. I, I will never be all over it. It will never stop for me. Mm -hmm. I right. have to fly 
first class, which I, I feel guilty about because I can't fly coach because I can't hold my shoulders in and coach and I can't sit in that position for, for more than about a half an hour. Otherwise, I can have a few weeks of pain. And so I have to get over the guilt that I feel about asking for people to, if they want me to come somewhere, to pay for me to fly first class because I'm self-conscious about drawing attention to myself. I don't like to be, you know, special in that way. But you have to say, wait a minute, I just, I have to do that. So you'll never be uh, completely over it. You'll be to a new, you know, baseline. I continue to push that baseline, but it's a, it's a daily effort. I do my physical therapy on a daily basis, and I'm just getting out of about a five-week significant downturn where I was really spiraling down with pain that was keeping me awake at night, and uh, you know I wasn't sleeping for days in a row, and then I'd be on call, and it was just like, wow, this is really getting frustrating. And then it broke again, and, and so you kind of go, oh, God, I'm, I'm out of that cycle. And so the the chronicity of it is something that I don't know that we acknowledge. Uh, I certainly do with my patients now. I you make sure I tell them they won't be normal. They'll be a new normal. I think I have to not focus on ever getting back to where I was before the crash, but trying to be the best that I can possibly be with my current anatomy and my current challenges and and focusing on that and then not giving up on trying to make that one little thing a little bit better. The other thing is the the chronic pain things, you can continue to work on them and you can make some of them go away. And it's like, wow, I thought I was going to have to be that way forever, but I was able to work with physical therapy and massage therapy and wow, that's gotten better and I, I haven't had pain there for six months. And so it's a constant, constant uh, not battle, but you know, it, it's your life and it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the new you. But when people look at you and think that you're completely recovered and say that, oh, you're all over it, it's like, well, no, you, you know, I'm not really, and I never will be. And that really shouldn't be an expectation. And I think that maybe as care providers, we, sh- we should try to avoid saying things like, so you're back to normal. Uh, because maybe that implies that people should be. But may, and I haven't thought of the word that it could be, but, you know, you're as good as you could possibly be right now, sort of thing, you know. And, um, so right. that's a, another a lesson um, that, uh, that is, uh, yeah. Especially not only for all surgeons, but the large contingent of uh, military surgeons and residents that are listening to this that deal with these multi-injured uh, patients that deal with this for years and the rest of their life. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and so now we're going to close up our dissection of the day and move into our tips and tricks. And this is where we get our experts to discuss a field um, and give us tips on how to get out of those sticky situations. And for you, we know you're an expert in the field of AIN when dealing with uh, anal rectal disease. And I was just wondering, can you just walk us through who are the patients? How do these patients present? Who should we um, have a high suspicion in? And who should be screened for this disease? Yeah, so certainly the uh, the highest risk patient population is HIV positive and HIV negative men who have sex with men. Anal cancer is 130 per 100,000 and HIV positive men who have sex with men. So anal cancer is an epidemic in this patient population. With the advent of heart 
uh, therapy that has not, you know, turned bent that curve downwards. So, uh, as predicted in the mid '90s uh, by Joel Pulaski and in, in our group, uh, you know, uh, highly active uh, antiretroviral therapies uh, would uh, keep people alive long enough to then develop anal cancer. Uh, so, uh, people who are involved in anal receptive intercourse, whether they're uh, uh, HIV negative, HIV positive men, are certainly at uh, increased risk. Um, IV drug abusers are uh, at increased risk. Patients who are immunosuppressed for solid organ transplants, such as kidney transplant, are at increased risk. That may be drug uh, dependent uh, because. Uh, we certainly haven't haven't seen uh, the uh, same uh, rates uh, outside of kidney transplant, which has a lot to do with uh, which. Sorry, outside of kidney transplant, where steroids are used quite a bit more than other uh, organs, and so I think that maybe steroids have some sort of role in this versus other drugs, um, but uh, that's total conjecture. Uh, and then uh, certainly. Uh, more and more women are reporting uh, antireceptive intercourse as part of their heterosexual activities. And so up to 48%, I think, is roughly the number that's coming to mind right now, but somewhere between 40 and 50% of women report that. So antireceptive intercourse is increasingly common in heterosexual relationships. And if you're having antireceptive intercourse, uh, you're at increased risk for uh, anal uh, Anal HPV exposure and uh, and and then uh, high grade uh, low grade and high grade dysplasia. I will emphasize that um, having anal condyloma or low grade or high grade dysplasia does not mean that you've had antireceptive intercourse. Uh, that is not at all a necessary um, activity to have that. And I literally on a weekly basis in clinic I'm explaining to women who say, gee, I've never had receptive intercourse, how the virus gets from the vagina to the anus. And if you have vaginal intercourse, you have sweat, vaginal secretions, and semen that uh, pool in the vagina and then can run down the perineum mix with the sweat on the perineum, and then make contact with the mucus of the anus. And then once you have those liquids contacting each other, it's a highway. The virus goes from the vagina into the anus, and there doesn't have to be any anal penetration with fingers, sex objects, or the penis. So it's just if the liquids mix, the virus is in the anus. And we don't really understand the immunology of the anal mucosa well, but it may actually uh, hide there better than it hides in other parts. And so we see uh, anal HPV in people who don't have uh, surgical, cervical HPV, and we don't uh, understand this well. Um, the um, So then who, you know, should be screened? Certainly people who are HIV negative, HIV positive, men who have sex with men, and women who report anal receptive intercourse should be screened. Um, and it's easy to screen women because when they see their gynecologist, you say uh, get an anal, uh, anal pap smear at the same time so they can have a cervical pap smear and an anal pap smear, and you can uh, potentially detect the disease that way. The HIV positive and HIV negative men who have sex with men, I also think that they're relatively easy to 
to follow because they're often motivated and uh, they can go to their positive care doctors even if they're HIV negative. I say, look, you know, you know positive care doctor. Oh, yes, I have a doctor who specializes in this area. I say, well, talk to them about getting an anal pap smear. Now, there is controversy around whether anal pap smear is adequate and whether or not all patients who are at increased risk should have HRA as well, high-resolution anoscopy. And uh, HRA certainly is better than anal pap smear, but years ago, Joel Pileski explained to me that the sensitivity to a cervical pap smear is to the repetition of year after year after year. It's, you know, only about 60%, and then it's 60%, and it's 60%. So over the years, you then will pick up the disease, and since it's slowly progressive, then then, then you're okay. Now, this is not – I won't even say that this is Joel's uh, – continued position, although I, I think that Joel is uh, not necessarily hard one way or the other on this. Other people are adamant that you have to do high-resolution anoscopy at first, and certainly if you have a HIV-positive man who's having uh, active anoreceptive intercourse with uh, multiple partners, that certainly is something that you uh, could recommend. Uh, the question is, you know, does it have to be standard of care? Well, you can't make it a standard of care because not everybody can get access to it. So there's nothing wrong with doing it, but if all you have available to you is an anal pastor, that's better than doing nothing. Um, and those are sort of the various, you know, uh, buckets that I try to get people into, women to back to their gynecologists, men to positive care clinics. The challenge that becomes, you know, HIV negative men who don't have anal receptive intercourse, and I actually don't have a good answer as to how to follow those patients along, except for potentially with their colorectal surgeon or general surgeon that's done, uh, that's treated them. The problem with that is kind of, well, really? You know, we've had people with warts forever that we haven't then followed for forever. So uh, I don't know that you can't just treat people with warts and just say, look, the warts come back, come see me if you're symptomatic. Uh, the, the question becomes, if you have high-grade dysplasia, how do you then follow those patients? And in the heterosexual men who have a screening colonoscopy for colorectal cancer and have a retroflex view and they find high-grade dysplasia by chance, how do you follow that patient? Not very common, but I do have a few. And those patients, I'm at least, at least initially, I try to see them back at about a year and see how they're doing and do an anoscopy and potentially a pap smear if we can get it done. It's Again, it's a hard thing in my personal clinic, but that would be ideal. I don't know that they need a high-resolution anoscopy. I think at least a digital uh, rectal exam, anoscopy, and a pap smear would be good. And then can you spread them out to every other year uh, you know, I, and I don't, I don't think we have firm, I, I know we don't have firm guidelines around any of this. We have a group of people have written a white paper around how to address women and anal uh, dysplasia, uh, and that paper will be coming out. And it's a, uh, it's a lot of, we don't know. Uh, it's a lot of, well, we're going to do the best we can. We're gathering information and breaking them into risk categories. One interesting thing, we just sent out a paper that's been accepted for publication looking at patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And to my surprise, uh, patients who are on long-standing immunosuppression with 6MP do not appear, at least in our smaller study, but it was 
validated statistically, do not appear to be at increased risk of anal dysplasia over uh, a quote-unquote normal population. But patients with 10 years of Crohn's disease are. So we should be potentially doing pap smears uh, in patients with Crohn's disease after 10 years. Uh, and this paper has been accepted for publication. And uh, how would we do that? Well, again, I would say the gastroenterologists that are following those patients are the ones that could do a pap smear before they do the colonoscopy. And then uh, do a colonoscopy, do a retroflex view, and potentially take some random biopsies and directed biopsies uh, because we did see an increased incidence of anal dysplasia in that patient population. But I'm a, I'm a long way away from having any sort of recommendations around uh, what to do with uh, with that, you know, specific patient population. Unfortunately, where we really are in my mind with anal dysplasia, uh, except for uh, with the very clear, very high-risk patients, uh, we're really in the situation of, uh, as I tell my medical students, you know, yeah, I'm an international expert in this area, but I actually have no idea what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. I'm just making it up and saying it with authority. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I, hopefully over time we'll hopefully over time we'll, we'll gain you know more information and be able to have clearer guidelines. Um, well, we do very much appreciate the recommendations that, that you have. Yeah, absolutely, and we do appreciate the recommendations that you have. And that ends our tips and tricks segment. We are going to transition now into our final five. So, Mark number one. Do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what kind? So if I had my preference, I would listen to jazz music in the operating room. The problem is my nurses uh, hate the songs without words. (laughs) And the other thing that I learned is if I'm playing a song that I really love and I then have a surgical misadventure, I end up... (laughs) having that song associated with that, you know, pelvic bleeding or whatever, and I I don't necessarily have the same association that I would like with a song that I love. Now I now have this memory of getting into pelvic hemorrhage or, or cutting a ureter. I haven't cut a ureter in that situation, but uh, so I, I have now sort of caved in to the nurses streaming whatever they want to stream uh, to keep them happy. Uh, I have gotten older and uh, less tolerant, in particular, again, actually, since the crash. Uh, if the case is challenging, I don't like the noise of the music now. I used to love it. Now I find it a bit irritating. Uh, and I, uh, So I ask them to turn it off if we're, if we're struggling, and then I'll let them turn it back on when we're not. Uh, and the only thing that I'll, I won't let them play is, unfortunately, I'm not a country western fan, so I really don't let them play country western. But I'd prefer <laughs> jazz if I could listen to it. Uh, number two, is there any talents or interests outside of the operating room um, other than biking that you could uh, let us in on? Uh, well, I, I, the talent is is. <laughs> is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, But I love any sort of sport uh, 
I love body surfing. I love surfing. Uh, I, I, I dropped out of college to ski, uh, and, uh, was, uh, you know, on the verge of, uh, being a professional freestyle, uh, skier, uh, was able to beat, uh, freestyle skiers in head to head competition, uh, when I decided to go back to, uh, back to college so I could go to medical school. So skiing was always a passion of mine. Uh, I don't do it nearly as much anymore. And, uh, um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I love being out in the uh, mountains if I'm hiking. Uh, so again, mountain biking out in the mountains, hiking out in the mountains, uh, uh, any sort of uh, uh, sports. Um, and then I guess, you know, I, witness of where I really spend the most of my free time, uh, being with my family, being with my kids, uh, being with uh, our dogs. Uh, that's really, you know, the way I spend every free moment of every uh, day I have is just, just trying to wedge out another five minutes with my children before they get to the age that they are just so totally uh, into their own lives. And uh, someday families and that sort of thing that they don't have any time for their, you know, their old dad. Number three, tell us about a favorite vacation or destination that you've been to or been on. I mean, I love jazz music. So to go to hear live jazz, uh, to, to go to Yoshi's in Oakland, uh, to go hear jazz in San Francisco, uh, that is uh, a really uh, something I really, really, really enjoy. And in fact, another tip that I would give people as you're telling people what to do as they recover from uh, their surgery, um, I, I, I didn't realize how important it was for me to start to listen to my music again. And when mm-hmm. I start, when I was home and able to start playing my listen to music, I don't play an instrument to listen to music. It just really helped me. Uh, and I don't want to sound say this word. It really helped me heal. Uh, mm-hmm. It really just was so great for me to listen to my music and get lost in my music. Uh, so jazz, and then finally. Uh, baseball. I'm a huge Giants baseball fan and have the great uh, privilege of having a good friend who's a coach with the Giants. And so taking my kids to spring training this year, being with my children, uh, having dinner with uh, Dave Rigetti and Mark Gardner and talking baseball with my daughters. And uh, I, I, just, I love uh, baseball. I love Giants baseball. And I love spending time with my kids doing sports. Uh, so uh, baseball and jazz music, I would also say. Sorry. And the number three again, can you repeat that for me, Scott? I forgot. Number three, tell us about a favorite vacation or destination that you've been to. Wow, I have, I really have, uh, <laughs> I have three that come to mind immediately. I love Lanikai on the island of Oahu that's over the back from uh, Honolulu. Uh, my family and I go to Lanikai. It's right next to Kailua. Uh, 
on one vacation we were there with uh, at the same time uh, Obama was there, so we got to see the president. That was kind of fun for the family. But Lonnie Kai is a favorite destination. We have a house that we go to at the very end of the road, and we absolutely love it. Uh, then I would say the other sort of other extreme is to go to Murden, M-U-R-R-E-N, Switzerland, which is up across the valley from the Eiger. And I'm going there in the middle of July, and we're going to go mountain biking, and it's just, it's just, Heaven, it's so spectacular. And then I would say the the I would say I'm blanking on the name right now. The uh, the Tetons. I love Jackson, Wyoming, and the Tetons. Mm. So those are my three favorite places in the world. I love I, I Jenny Lake at the base of the Tetons is has a similar feel. For me, as the uh, the Eiger and being up in the mountains in Switzerland, but it's also if you look at the ranch houses and barns that are out on those prairies and the buffalo and the and just those uh, those huge majestic mountains rocketing up out of the plain. I just uh, I love it there. Number four, if you did not become a surgeon, what field of study would you have gone into or work? You know, uh, my entire life, literally, from uh, my entire life, I wanted to be a doctor. I don't know why. My father's a physician, but I have three older brothers and a younger sister. None of them wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, There's a picture of me when I'm three holding a doctor's bag with a pipe in my hand, dressed up with my sport coat and ready to go to work. And I've got the little doctor's bag and I'm giving thumbs up sort of thing. And uh, so I I, I guess I would have been another type of doctor uh, other than a surgeon. I knew I would never be a surgeon. I always knew I was going to be a pediatrician. I got a degree in child development. I taught nursery school for two years. And I and and, and I was going to be the world's best pediatrician. But uh, it turns out I, I can't hurt kids, so I, I just can't just myself from their pain uh and then i did surgery and i absolutely a thousand percent fell in love with it and it was like what i have to you know what i had to be i guess if i wasn't going to be a doctor and i guess it is true i mean i took the fork in the road when i was 19 i was offered the opportunity to continue to be a college dropout move to south america and join the pro circuit in skiing and that's i was uh i was able to beat people that were in the top 10 uh, and so I was being recruited to ski, uh, and I guess I would be, uh, would have been a professional, uh, skier, uh, and then, uh, probably be one of those sort of ambassadors that they have at various ski resorts, like, uh, Billy Kidd at Steamboat, you know, you, 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 you take the VIPs around and you show them the good places to ski for the intermediate skiers that they all are. And mm-hmm. So I probably would have just lived on a mountain somewhere and skied, uh, you know. Number five, if you could go back to your intern year on day one and give yourself one piece of advice, what would that be?
Uh, that's a, another great question. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, take a deep breath. You can actually do this. Uh, you know, yeah, I was a, just, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was scared stiff. You know, I, I went from being a very confident fourth-year student to just a terrified first, you know, intern. And I, I remember literally on my very first night of call, my very first day, I was on call for ortho, and I was asked to give a sleeper for a patient on the orthopedic service at the VA, and we had like 51 patients. And I remember saying, okay, we'll give them, and I remember what the drug was. It, it wasn't Ambien. It wasn't, it may have been Ativan. I think it began with an A, but it was, you know, 1984, whatever sleepers we had available at the time. But then I remember kind of panicking, going, ah, ah, what what if, uh, you know, he's got some sort of adverse reaction? What if it cross-reacts with whatever drug? So I remember pulling out the PDR and looking through the PDR for drug interactions <laughs> and making sure I wasn't going to be doing the wrong thing for this guy. <laughs> and um, and uh, just uh, so I, yeah, and, and I gave the drug and the guy did okay. And But I I, uh, I think that I ran around, well, I still feel the same. Actually, I feel the same way now. I feel like I really don't know anything. And at any moment, somebody's going to pull back the curtain and I'm going to be exposed as a complete fraud who has no idea what he's doing and has been faking it the entire time. And that if I hadn't slept through that goddamn class, if I had read one more chapter or one more paper, that I'd actually be a better doctor and that people are going to find out that I really don't know anything. And that's the way I felt as an intern. That's the way I felt I feel now. Uh, and so I guess the advice to myself then would be, again, take a deep breath, relax. Uh, your, your heart is in the right place. And, and you're trying to do good things for people so you'll be okay. Well, Mark, we cannot thank you enough for sharing your testimony and just the really raw events and how it's changed your life and continues to allow you to grow. I know, you know, this is, I've, you and I have talked about this before and God, when I hear it, it just, it's always incredible. And it's just something that makes me reevaluate how I am as a surgeon and interact with my patients. So on behalf of everybody, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thank you. It was, it was great fun. Until next time, dominate the day. 